Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except we really have no idea if you have read the book. This month's pick is Maggie Shipstead's newest novel. It's called Great Circle, and it has two interwoven stories. One is about Marion Graves, who's a pilot who disappears in the 50s while flying around the world from pole to pole. And we also have Hadley Baxter, who's an actor who plays her in a biopic in modern day times. She lives in Los Angeles. We have a panel chat all about this book coming up in a couple of weeks. Today is the spoiler-free author discussion, which means Maggie Shipstead is with us now. Maggie, welcome to Nerdette. Oh, thanks for having me, Greta. So I feel weird about using the word sweeping, but here we are. Um, This book has so much scope. It is about so many things. You have geological history. Uh, You beautifully describe the complete exhaustion of being a young woman in the spotlight. You talk about World War II. There are bootleggers. There are landscape artists in the Pacific Northwest. There's like beautiful scenes in Alaska. It's about aviation history. Was there ever a point when you were writing this book where you were like, what is this weird monster that I have created? (laughs) Oh my gosh, there were so many moments like that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the best description of my process is like, it's spun wildly out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'd written my first two books, each of them in under a year. And so when I sat down to start this one, I think I thought like, oh, I'll just bust this out in nine months, you know, and, and I, my other books also had started from short stories, but this was the first one I wrote sort of as a novel and I can never plan or outline. I just kind of have to start. So I started just not having a very clear concept of it or what all would happen. I just knew that she would fly around the world north, south and disappear in 1950 um, and I planned her route, Marion Graves's route. And then I knew she would fly in World War II transporting warplanes, but I hadn't decided whether that would be in the US or UK. Mm. Um, so yeah, it just, I always say it was like building a house without a blueprint, you know, and it just ended up with like <laughs> turrets and like staircases to nowhere. And yeah, it really was not what I expected. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, I called it a monster, but in the most kind way, like I adored this book. It's absolutely a monster, though. And there were plenty of days (laughs) where I was just like, what have I done? You know, kind of two years into writing the first draft, the first draft took three years and three months, and it was 980 pages. So this is actually (laughs) a smaller version, like it lost about 25% of its length in edits. Um, But kind of two years in when I realized I wasn't even halfway through, I had this like, horrific day where I was like oh no (laughs) you know like I'm never gonna finish this I don't even know if it's possible to finish this and I just had to sort of readjust and just take it one day at a time wow so yeah how do you like how do you keep going under those circumstances I guess you were just fascinated enough by the topic that you knew you had to keep going yeah and I was just in too deep (laughs) you know like (laughs) I'd written like 
400 plus pages. And I believed in the, you know, I always believed in the project and in what I'd already written. It was just always this question of like, well, can I write the rest? Um, that was sort of where my confidence would waver sometimes, or how am I going to bring it all together? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fr- friends of mine were publishing books, and I felt sort of left out. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, everyone's going to forget I exist. But when you're a novelist, everyone forgets you exist in like two days. So it really didn't matter. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't seem like sort of a good thing for my life and my state of mind. Like I just had to focus on the book, but also focus on other things. Like I did a lot of travel writing and and that really expanded um, my horizon and kind of changed the way I, I think about myself. So it was, it was really sort of uh, funnily integrated with my, my real life as well as just my writing life. That's funny. Cause yeah, I was going to say, I mean, even like within the book, the story we have is so much about expanding horizons and sort of redefining who you are, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's really beautiful. So I have a lot of questions about how you research a book like this, because it covers so many places and topics. Um, You kind of just mentioned places. Obviously, it's possible to write about someplace that you haven't visited, but it doesn't seem nearly as fun. Did you get to travel to most of the places that you talk about in the book? I have been to, yeah, almost all of the places and uh, totally agree. It is absolutely possible to write about places you haven't been and it's a complete privilege to be able to go places and it helps that I don't have you know kids or another job and um mm-hmm. yeah I started freelancing for travel magazines so from the beginning I knew I wanted to get to the polar regions and I started writing in fall of 2014 and I hadn't been anywhere like that um and now I've been I've been to the arctic about 5 times I've been to antarctica twice um, I spent two months in Missoula, Montana, where Marion grows up. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, right before I started writing, uh, when I was thinking for some reason I was going to set it in Nebraska. <laughs> and I was like in Missoula trying to sort of start a book set in Nebraska. And then eventually I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, wait, I can, I can make this easier for myself. <laughs> yeah, this would be better. Um, Ooh, and hilarious. yeah, Alaska, Hawaii, Cook Islands, all those places. <sighs> and it kind of, as I started travel writing, I would always pitch these sort of deserted wastelands. And eventually the editors were like, oh, are you OK, Maggie? <laughs> yeah, we we need someone to go to this deserted wasteland. Like, let's see if Maggie's available. So it sort of became like my my specialty. Oh, the deserted wasteland beat. I love that. <laughs> yeah, um, I it was especially a pleasure for me, I think, to read the parts of it that are set in Alaska because I grew up there. Oh, amazing. And, and like, I'm never really sure, you know, like, it's such a weird, wild, huge, vast place. And there's so much that's really special and strange about it. And it's, I don't know, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to write about, you know, especially if you hadn't grown up there, but you captured it exquisitely. It was so cool to read. Oh, thank you. That's that's really amazing to hear. Yeah, I mean, and Alaska has such a special relationship with aviation, this expression mm-hmm. that it's the flyingest people, you know, that really resonated with me. And it, it also makes sense. I, I'm sure you've heard the the saying that um, if you live in Alaska and you're not in oil and gas or the military, you're probably the skeleton in somebody else's closet. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I haven't heard that one, but I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it just made sense as a place where Marion could kind of disappear when she wants to yeah. and, and also um, a 
especially in kind of the early days of aviation, just everyone saw the potential for this, you know, five days with a dog sled or two hours in a, in a little biplane. And um, the potential for flying was so clear. Yeah, that's really cool. So I'm curious to ask you a little bit about Antarctica, because I feel like it's probably what most people picture when they ask me what Alaska is like. Like I'm picturing just <laughs> yeah. sheets of ice and it's like blindingly bright and there's no wildlife and it's just like super fucking cold. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. With Although there is like a, a crazy abundance of wildlife where there's any. So, you know, it's like there might be nothing or there might be like 250,000 penguins mm. <laughs> all together. Um, the first time I went, I went from New Zealand, which is uh, a really unusual way to go. Like most people go from South America because it's like a day across the Drake Passage, which is can be really big seas everyone makes a giant deal out of it um but you don't go very far south you don't most trips from south america don't even cross the antarctic circle which is at 66 degrees south and going Mm -hmm. from new zealand just to reach land you know you're at sea for five days after you leave behind the last little island and then we went to 79 degrees south so super super remote and then I also, I, because Marion flies across the interior of Antarctica, I really wanted to see that, but it's just prohibitively expensive to go as a tourist. So what I ended up doing was I pitched a magazine story about um, these pilots that do our polar airlift. And so I flew in the back of a cargo plane from upstate New York to Greenland, and we landed on the Greenland ice sheet, which looks like the Antarctic ice sheet in that it's you're standing in this perfect uninterrupted disk of white on top of thousands of feet of ice and just like a dome of sky overhead. And I always say the book's really preoccupied with scale and, and that just simple visual and experience kind of made me feel in some ways like, you know, almost like the shape of the planet, like you can see the curvature of the earth and you can mm-hmm. sort of feel it as really, um, yeah, just something that will always be with me. That's really cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about scale because I've I've seen a couple other interviews where you've talked about that. And I think it is such a fascinating word to embody this book because, you know, I mean, I used sweeping earlier, like Epic is another one, but scale I think is so fascinating because I think it really captures the the variation in relationships between, you know, a human and another human, but then also a human in a landscape, but then also a human in an airplane. And, you know, like there Mm -hmm. are just so many different ways of cutting it, I think, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Then that's exactly kind of what appealed to me. And you can sort of frame almost anything in terms of scale, you know, like even, um, Yeah, I think this was something with early flight, just, uh, you know, the difference between traveling overland and traveling in the air, just being able to get to places so much more quickly, it changes your sense of the scale of the geography, either just around you or of the planet as a whole. Um, And that really interests me just as a person. And, And of course, you want to be interested in what you're writing about. So it crept in for sure. So as I mentioned, we have two main storylines. Hadley is in the first person. Marianne is in the third person. But you also kind of zoom out and have these chapters that that cover more. But there, like, there's a chapter about the geological history of the region that becomes Montana. Um, why did you decide to do that? Was it just about the sense of scale? You know, I it's all these decisions were sort of like impulses really early in in the writing. I remember, so I, like I said, I'd lived in Missoula and just for a couple months and the house I rented was on the side of this mountain and you could see these sort of horizontal 
lines. And I was sort of like, I wonder what those are, <laughs> you know? And it wasn't mm-hmm. until after I left that I learned they were sort of tidal lines from this huge glacial lake that formed, you know, 15,000 years ago. And and then the ice dam broke and it just emptied across the Pacific Northwest and really shaped the landscape. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And, and also the idea of like these stray boulders that you find in fields in Montana that had been frozen into ice that was floating on the surface of this lake, you know, 2000 feet up, and then the ice would melt, melt and these rocks would fall to the, the lake floor, which is now, you know, just land. Um, something about that is so just, I don't know, it just tickles my interest. So when I when I wanted to include that, I just had this idea to do these, what I call incomplete histories or to do the first one about Montana. And I think it was, you know, sort of subconsciously this just gravitating towards scale and and being able to sort of situate Marion in the real world and in a larger world and sort of find a way to get at how we're all sort of situated in this sort of huge sweep of time. Um, and so then I employed it, you know, several other times throughout the book. And actually one of the things that got cut eventually was an incomplete history of Antarctica, which came very late in the book. And my editor was like, you know, when people have read 500 pages, <laughs> now is not the time, they don't want to be like, let's go back to Pangea, you know, <laughs> so that, that still uh, exists on my cutting room floor, but didn't make the cut. More on Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead right after the break. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. can't imagine how much research you did even based on what's in the book let alone what's on the cutting room floor does that process like is it ever exhausting or frustrating or is it always like are you always happy to go down these paths because they're tickling your interests um it's kind of always exhausting and frustrating like (laughs) entire process of writing this book was like swimming upstream and Mm. you know because I don't plan I just sort of get to something where I'd be like well now I have to look that up you know and sometimes that was easy (laughs) and other times it necessitated like ordering used books and waiting for them to arrive but Mm. um it would just sort of be as something arose, you know, and it like the book starts with the ship being launched in Glasgow in, in 1909. And once they had that idea, it was like, you know, deep sigh, like now I have to figure out how a ship would be launched. And so like, there goes a few days while I tracked that down. So it wasn't like I did a ton of research that exists outside the book, like certainly okay. some things, but for the most part, it was 
chasing answers to specific questions. And then inevitably I would stumble across something that I'd be like, well, that's interesting in that goes, you know, and so that might totally divert the plot or just be a stray detail or something that, that I came across. So yeah, it was really, I mean, I think organic is overused, but it was fairly (laughs) organic. Um, I know some writers do all their research in advance and have these elaborate filing systems, but Mm. I just couldn't possibly hold that much in my head. So (laughs) there was really no point. (laughs) Are there, I mean, I imagine still in the book, there were instances where you were like, you know what, fuck it, it's fiction. Um, Kind of. I try to avoid that. I'm like such a literal reader and it drives me absolutely insane when things are implausible. Um, (laughs) And so I was really concerned with at least plausibility. And even like Marion's flight would have been borderline impossible in that year. So I did everything I could to make it feasible. So like the big problem would have been Antarctica because in 1950, there were no permanent bases. And to get across it, you would have needed to refuel this plane twice. So I like lined it up with an actual historic expedition to East Antarctica, which could conceivably have brought fuel for her. And then she lands at an existing sort of abandoned base um, on the Ross ice shelf, which, which was where I went when I went from New Zealand. So um, yeah, I would do my best to to make it kind of work. I mean, I think the elements in which I was like, eh, it's fiction were more like just letting a lot happen. You know, like there's a lot of mm. plot in this story and um, I'm sort of fine with my plots being like maybe half a notch sort of elevated from reality. You know, I, I want it to be a story and be entertaining um, as opposed to like a gritty psychological study of a pilot. Right. But you still have like a pretty strong foundation, like the foundation of the house still has like pretty specific rules about how it's supposed to be constructed. Is yeah. that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I, I just like obsessively check things. I mean, I'm sure there are mistakes in the book. There are always mistakes, but I don't know, like an example is I read two books in a row where somebody drowned and then three minutes later, the body is floating on the surface of the water. And I was like, what do you think makes a body float? You know, it's not death. It's not like you die and your body rockets to the surface. Like a body, <laughs> this is so gross. Sorry, I'm on this I love it. tangent. No, it's like, perfect. It has to, it's the, you know, the gases as the body deteriorates that make it float. So it doesn't make any sense. But I think people are like, bodies float and they just put it in their fiction. Mm-hmm. And so I really, really try not to do that. Um, and certainly I did. And most of it, I think, got caught in copy edits and proofs. But um, that's always my goal to avoid. Well, and I get that because there it is such a drag when something that like potentially insignificant to the plot at least the floating part, not the drowning part, right, right. like takes you out of the story, right? Because then exactly. all of a sudden you're like, well, shoot, like I was really enjoying that. But now I have like grievances, you know? <laughs> yeah, grievance is the right word. And you're like, oh, right, we're just playing pretend together. You know, like right. you're no longer being transported and you stop trusting the author a little bit. And, and mm. uh, yeah, I'm just really sensitive to that. Like, because I complain about it to my friends and they're like, yeah, who cares? But I care. <laughs> No, that's that's a really good way of putting it. And it's an interesting point because, I don't know, something that like I kept finding happening with myself as I was reading Great Circle is I wanted to Google stuff to look at it. 
Uh-huh. Like, especially there's this character, Jamie, and he paints these fascinating paintings that, like, somehow capture speaking of scale and scope like how big things are even though they're like contained pretty intensely on canvases Mm -hmm. obviously and like i just i want i was like i would like to see what that looks like please google and they're like greta that's not real (laughs) um but i think that is totally testament to the fact that like you know i felt so blissfully along for the ride with this one i think a lot of people have googled marion graves and i've seen just like when I've searched for this book, I'll see, you know, it's like other common searches include Marion Graves pilot. <laughs> like everybody is like, <laughs> kind of has to double check. She's not real, which I take oh, as a huge compliment. I love that. That's beautiful. I feel like there is an atemporality to a lot of the characters in this book, especially the women, especially Marion, which I guess isn't surprising given the impositions that were put on women, especially a hundred years ago. Um, But yeah, thinking about Marion trying to become a pilot, not wanting to be just a wife and mother, she faces so many obstacles. In some ways, she seems ahead of her time, but of course she wasn't. I just thought that friction was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I've gotten asked a lot about, you know, the the feminism of the book. And of course, it, it is a feminist book in the sense that if you're a woman and you think you have free will, like that's a feminist belief. <laughs> like everything. I feel like that's a low bar, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I didn't sort of sit down and go like, oh, I must show the hardships of women. But if you write about a woman in that era who wants mm-hmm. to do something other than being a wife and mother, it's like she was going to encounter these obstacles. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, part of what informs it, too, is just that Marion and her twin brother have this sort of feral childhood, you know, <laughs> with this benignly neglectful uncle. And I think she, it just doesn't really occur to her that there are any limitations on her until she decides she must be a pilot. And then she starts encountering like, Oh, these pilots won't give me lessons because I'm a girl. And, you know, what steps can I take to sort of counteract that? And, and I think, you know, she's, there is, yeah, a queerness to her and a gender fluidity to her and, and, but she wouldn't have had any vocabulary for those things or sort of almost any concepts for them. So, I mean, in some ways I wrote her as kind of this, a little bit of a pure, figure in that she really follows her impulses and her desires and and doesn't question them in a way that I think would have been, you know, extremely unusual. But it's also, you know, one thing I want to show as well is just that the decision to lead an unorthodox life, like certainly then and probably still now, isn't just one decision. It's this ongoing, Mm. endless stream of decisions and requires real vigilance and real sacrifice. Like she really gives up some human connection in order to maintain her freedom. Um, And it's not always easy and it's not always clear cut that that's the right thing to do, but it's just how she feels driven to live. Hmm. You have talked about how this book has different notes. um, And I think you meant it kind of in the context of like how different the tone is between the Marian sections, which we've talked about more and the, the Hadley sections and Hadley. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot about Hadley is that like she seems like she's over all of it, even though she very much isn't, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's like the easiest way to sort of like pretend like it's all fine and to survive, essentially. Um, But I mean, she's also pretty sarcastic. She can be hilarious. They are very different notes. It's been fun to listen to the audiobook now because um, I feel like the narrators capture each of those perfectly. I'm curious, like, I don't know. How did you make sure or did you that the overall composition still felt 
like it was at least in the same key or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, that was really difficult. It was difficult sort of in a structural way to figure out how the two stories would connect and how to bring them together, but in a way that was satisfying, but not too cute. Um, <laughs> I, I had the idea for Hadley really early. I think I'd been working just for a few weeks um, on the book and I wrote a section where she's leaving this nightclub with kind of a John Mayer type pop star and publicly <laughs> cheating on her, her movie star boyfriend and just blowing up her life. And on the surface, it had nothing to do with the aviatrix story I was writing. Like there's no mention, but I just had this feeling like these two things belong together. Um, I don't know. I've, I guess I just thought it was fine. <laughs> um, but it was, I also, I think like my earlier drafts, the Marion's flight sections were broken up and distributed throughout the book, whereas now they're, it's all at the end. Um, and I had even tried writing those sort of as her logbook, like in first person. So I definitely tried different things that, that didn't work. So I think I can usually sort of feel it. Um, but also sometimes I feel something's not working and I just do it anyway. And then sure enough, you know, my agent reads it and is like, uh, this doesn't work. And <laughs> I'm always hoping I'm wrong. Like that gut feeling is just incorrect. And someone's gonna be like, this was amazing. But that's, that's never happened ever. Um, maybe someday. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I mean, I think you just got to keep trying, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one day, I'll be wrong. <laughs> We've hinted at this a little bit, but I would love to talk to you a little more about what you think the common threads are between the two stories. Because, I mean, obviously, plot wise, like, you know, the fact that she Hadley becomes interested because she's going to play this woman in a movie. But I don't know. I mean, I do think there's more to it than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they're both sort of grappling with this question of like, how do I want to lead my like one life, you know, and mm. and I I think Hadley sees Marion, you know, to a large extent correctly as having this great advantage of knowing what she wants to do, knowing she wants to be a pilot. I think Hadley envies that. And there, there are enough sort of similarities between them that I think Hadley sort of thinks there's some hidden message in Marion's life, like specifically for her. You know, they both, mm. like Hadley's parents die in a small plane accident. They're both raised by uncles. Um, and she'd sort of happened on Marion's book as a, as a teenager or child. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Hadley has much more freedom just living in our era and having a crazy amount of money and being a famous movie star. But kind of the the crushing pressure on her is this sort of public scrutiny of being famous. And it's like Hadley's question is, do I want to disappear or do I want to be more famous? And Marion also has this relationship with disappearance that's never quite resolved. So and I also wanted Hadley to be in there just to get at sort of how much is lost, you know, uh, when someone dies and looking back 65 years after Marion's disappeared, I think Hadley is set up to understand that Marion can't be known partly because Hadley, you know, is always in the tabloids and people think they know her and people are always writing stories about her that are incorrect. And so she sees this game of telephone being played where Marion leaves behind a journal and then somebody uses that to write a novel about her and then the novel gets adapted into a movie. And so Hadley can sort of see the falseness of this, um, as can the reader, because the reader has a really close look at Marion's life through her point of view. So, yeah, that was kind of the sort of 
function of her um just in addition to to my being interested in hollywood and and liking the voice and kind of wanting to play (laughs) with celebrity gossip um yeah it did seem like such a pleasure to get to write like it's it definitely seemed like you had a good time of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was fun yeah and i've seen you know criticisms of the book where it's like oh is this really necessary and it's just like well no like nothing's really necessary like no this did not have to be 600 pages long no Hadley didn't have to be in there but like but also you're welcome right like a 300 page uniform log of historical fiction about a pilot is just not what I was doing or what this is about and I always think it's weird when people are like well I like books that are like this and it's like okay okay (laughs) great (laughs) you should find those books and read more of them yeah That's so funny. You know, that kind of reminds me of something Hadley says at one point, which I thought was really interesting. It was that people like stories that leave them a little bit frustrated. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true? It's true of me. Um, A lot of my opinions are actually in Hadley. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, I I don't know, the book I always think about in that context is Possession by A.S. Byatt, which is a book I really love and I've read multiple times. Um, But there are parts of it that I find like unbearably annoying and will never read again. And there are parts of it that I could just reread on a loop forever and never, my pleasure will never be diminished. And so kind of knowing that emboldened me to sort of write a book where I knew people like different pieces of it to different degrees. Or I think about, you know, movies or things like that, where there's like always this element of like, wait, what exactly happened? Or like, I don't totally understand this dynamic Mm -hmm. between these people. Like, those are the things that I tend to return to. I think things that are emotional, like fully emotionally legible, make perfect sense. There are no loose ends. It's all uniformly good. Like, I don't, I, I love those things, but I don't necessarily come back to them. Yeah, well, there's not as r- much room for imagination. You oh, know? totally. Like you don't get to finish the sentence or draw the line, you know, connect the dots or whatever. Or have something to kind of puzzle over, you know, yeah. and think about, yeah. yeah. Maggie, thank you so much. This was just like such a pleasure to talk with you about this book. Oh, thank you, Greta. Yeah, likewise. Great chatting with you. that's it for today keep an eye out for the great circle panel chat which comes out in a couple of weeks and if you're reading along send us a voicemail about what you think about the book just record yourself on your smartphone and send the file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com you can keep up with us on twitter and instagram just search for nerdappodcast i am on both of those platforms as greta m johnson and our producer is on twitter they are at isabel t carter the episode was produced by me and isabel carter and our executive producer is brendan banizak bye Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.